Welcome to the On the Blue Couch podcast. I'm Kathleen, host and psychotherapist providing information, reflections, and interviews on anything and everything related to therapy. This is episode 22, Caring for the Caregiver, a conversation with R. Scott Boots. Hi all, today I'm going to share with you a previously recorded conversation I had with a friend and colleague of mine, R. Scott Boots. He is founder and director of the Healthcare's Exchange Initiative. Uh, He presents to other caretakers um, through different organizations. He has a seminar entitled uh, Celebrating Ourselves Beating Burnout. So caretakers take many different forms. So he presents uh, to people who are taking care of a family member, maybe a family member who is ill, to medical health professionals who you know care for patients. Um, the thing that caretakers face is the risk of burnout. Um, and so he speaks about that as well as uh, building resiliency. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Here you go. Hi, Scott, and thanks for joining us today on On the Blue Couch. I so appreciate you uh, being willing to share some of your story as well as your expertise. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to start by asking you before we get into really what you're doing as far as providing, you know, psychoeducation, education uh, to other people, how you got interested and where you really started um, learning about what it means to be a caregiver. Sure. Well, um, what I've uh, caregiving patterns around caregiving start early. Usually, a lot of times um, in the family. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was young, and I learned how to be a caring person to make order out of chaos and make my mom feel good and feel happy. I also um, was raised congregational, so a lot of caring people have spiritual beliefs to help other people and make take care of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, as a young person, I volunteered at a hospital in my hometown. I would visit. I was a patient visitor, and also I wanted to, when I was a teenager, go out to Appalachia and and uh, volunteer in Appalachia. So I wrote to the Homeland Board of Ministries, the congregational church, and they said we don't have any missions, but there's a Catholic mission in Pennsylvania. And so I took a bus out uh-huh. in 1981 and spent three weeks at a Catholic mission volunteering. We did service projects. Okay. I was the only Protestant there. So when everybody went up for communion, I had to sit and watch them. And I remember bursting into tears because I couldn't have communion. But um, So I was always kind of a caring person. When I moved out to Boston, Massachusetts, after I got my bachelor's degree um, in 1987, the big issue of the time was HIV. Uh-huh. Um, so I started to volunteer. I started to attend Trinity Church at Copley Square, which is the largest Episcopal church in Boston. And I ended up volunteering as the co-chair of pastoral care and also mm-hmm. the chair of the AIDS support committee. Okay. So in, back in 87, as you know, it was before the drug cocktails. And so people with HIV were just dying, sort of like Alzheimer's now. All you could do is there was no real effective medical treatments. All you could do is help people live and die with dignity. And so I ended up sitting next to beds of you know, men and some women who were dying from AIDS, and it was pretty intense. I and thought it was. As a result of that, um, I experienced compassion fatigue as a volunteer. I just started to get um, just emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted, and so I experienced burnout firsthand. Okay. How did you know that you were there, that you had arrived at that place? Was it in that moment? Was it in reflecting back 
I was in this burnout. I think it's in reflecting back. I was very involved with with, a, with this large Episcopal church, which was also very very political, and so there was. Um, I was just I was just overextended. I think at the time I was trying to be the best person in the world and make everybody happy. And so, looking back, I I see now that I sort of sort of had burnout. There was no clinical thing. I didn't have a breakdown. I didn't have to go to the hospital. But I just sort of I lost my enthusiasm for volunteering, mm-hmm. and I realized that it, this was very very intense, and I just need to. I realized that I need to step back, stop volunteering, stop doing so much for other people. But I also realized at the same time, the good thing about that experience was I realized that caring people, people who are responsible about caring for other people, really, really need to be educated about how to identify stress and how to respond in healthy ways. Mm-hmm. That if I, you know, as a, as a very um, experienced and educated, caring person was experiencing these things, a lot of other people were also. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, I started to talk about starting an organization, some kind of project to help caregivers. Initially, Mm -hmm. our focus was HIV caregivers, and we're not limited to that. But um, I was sitting actually in in uh, in the empty church at Trinity Church, and I was looking at the big. I think it's I think it's one of the largest crosses hanging down at the altar of any church in the U.S. And Mm -hmm. about 1990, and I had I had what I considered to be a vision. Uh-huh. To create a network to support caring people in diversely affected geographic areas. So, in 1992, we started um, the Health Cares Exchange Initiative, or HCEI, which is a Massachusetts-based 501c3, and our focus is to teach resilience skills building uh, workshops for people at risk for stress and burnout. So, we. Um, we use a broad-based definition of caregiver or caring people. It could be a paid care provider. It could be a volunteer or family member. Mm-hmm. But we, uh, one thing that we realized that we needed to do early on to establish credibility was sort of document a need. And so we created our own moderator's guide and held what I think were the first ever nationwide focus groups for both paid and non-paid care providers. Okay. We found trained facilitators at marketing research firms in Minneapolis and Cedar Rapids, Iowa and Boston and Kansas City. And they, we, we convened groups of care providers and asked them about what their experiences were, but also what their needs are and did they feel supported. Okay. And so what do you remember finding out? When you ask those questions. What we found out is that almost almost none of the caregivers felt supported. They have uh-huh. great need. The family caregivers, um, when we asked, we had we had one group with family caregivers, different groups with paid care providers. If you ask a family caregiver what cause, what evokes a stress response in them, they will say the medical staff, the social workers, the therapists. If you ask a paid provider what evokes a stress response in you, they'll say the family members. Uh-huh. And so on, to, to some extent, we have to keep them separate because they might eat each other. We put them in the same room. But also what we found is that family care providers, because of HIPAA and because of just our culture in general, family caregivers are really in great need of support, but they're also very isolated from each other. They can go to a support group, um, but besides that, I can't. I can't... They don't really self-identify, and they're sort of protected. So when we wanted to have focus groups with paid, with family care providers, we had to go to organizations who had support groups and ask them if they would advertise this through their support group. Okay, so even privacy. having people to be able to ask these questions of, like, so even yep. getting there. And so what groups, what support groups were you able to, you know, I guess, access or be able to speak with some of these caregivers? Was it like a range of different kinds of caretakers? Is- 
When we did our focus groups, it was mostly HIV because okay. that was my experience at the time. So it was family care providers. So it was a lot of parents whose sons or daughters were had died or were dying oh, from no. AIDS. And uh-huh. again, there was no effective medical treatment until mm-hmm. 95, 96. So mm-hmm. it was pretty intense. Um, we also found out, what I found out over time looking back is that in the United States, people have a really hard time talking about stress. People aren't comfortable personally or professionally talking about emotions, asking for help. People mm-hmm. see stress kind of like toenail fungus. They don't want to talk about it. They know what it is, but let's not talk about it. Uh-huh. So people people who care about other people, whether it's a paid care provider or a family member, they smile and they say to their they say to their supervisors, they say to their nurse managers, "I'm fine. I don't need anything." They say to their clergy and their county health officials, their elected officials, they smile and say, "I'm fine. I'm not. I don't need anything." Meanwhile, the number one leading cause of death in the U.S. is cardio, is our mm-hmm. hearts are giving out. Mm-hmm. So, but people are and and in it's been documented recently in the British Medical Journal, but also in, in other research in 2013 that. Preventable medical errors that take place in the workplace are probably the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So cardiac is number one, cancer is number two, and number three is stressed out medical providers who make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So part of the challenge is to get decision makers willing to be proactive and preventative who want to talk about emotions, who want to do the right thing, and that's mm-hmm. been a very difficult challenge. Okay. So as far as talking about emotions, like what's your experience of someone who gets more in touch with what's happening for themselves? Like what kinds of stuff do you see start coming up and what do you see, um, if any, if there's a positive impact around that? Like what do you observe? So the workshop that we developed as a result of our focus groups is called Celebrating Ourselves Beating Burnout. Uh And it's usually a 90-minute workshop. Um... And basically, what I found is that people need to be celebrated. People need to be encouraged and celebrated. They don't want it. They don't. People, if people come to a stress management skills building workshop or resilience skills building workshop, it can't be punitive. They can't feel like I'm being singled out because I'm a bad person, because I'm weak, because I'm at fault. Even mm-hmm. if they are, even if they're in the workplace, have made medical errors or whatever, you still have to make it positive and affirming. So, mm-hmm. first of all, people have to want to be there and want to feel celebrated. Um, I think people want people people. Um, some organizations take the approach, we really don't want somebody from the outside coming in and stirring things up and talking about our business and knowing our business. We take care of our own, which a lot of organizations don't, by the way. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of, I think a lot of individuals actually prefer an outside person like me coming in and mm-hmm. being their airplane friend, coming in, talking about emotional issues, talking about stress, mm-hmm. talking about it effectively, and then leaving I think it's important to groups of people um, that they that they're that that it's credible. So because I'm a caregiver who experienced burnout myself, I tell my own story. Mm-hmm. I incorporate stories about my family caregiving. I, I incorporate humor. But I think so. So it's so important. It's important for people to know that you're credible. That you're not just one. You're not a consulting firm. And this is one. This is one canned all day workshop that you can give for three thousand dollars a person. You know that's people are going to know that that's crap. Um, also people, um, let's see, people 
like people need to be given the words to understand their experience mm -hmm. so caring people need to know people need to be reminded about what the fight or flight response is mm -hmm. so in the first third of in the first third of my workshop i point out i give people information we go over what are dynamics of care what are all dynamics of altruism you know it's been documented that People are more willing to help another person if they look like themselves than if they don't. Or mm -hmm. people are more willing to help another person if they smell vanilla than if they smell jasmine or they don't smell anything. Because when people smell vanilla, they associate it with food and they feel happy. Mm -hmm. And they're more willing to be altruistic. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about, you know, there's givers and there's takers. I say, you know, stepping back a second from the people you're responsible for caring about there are people who give and people who take. And, you know, what's the breakdown in the world of givers versus takers? I say, is it 50-50? And usually people yell out, hell no. <laughs> and I say, what's the breakdown on a good day? And they say 95-5. <laughs> um, so the first part is people need um, the basic, people need words. People need to know what the symptoms of stress and burnout are. And mm -hmm. so I talk about... Uh, Christina Maslach's um, burnout inventory. Different social scientists have come up with different burnout inventories, and she came up with one for social workers. But so depression is a big red flag for burnout, and depersonalization or mm -hmm. a lack of any sense of accomplishment or emotional exhaustion. And so I think that so it's important to give caring people these words because. Mm -hmm. If they're experiencing one or all of them, they don't know how to ask for help if they can't even name it. So mm -hmm. that's the first part. And also sort of giving people permission, explaining to everybody that um, everybody experiences stress, but stress doesn't kill us per se. So, but if you're, if you're, if you're genetically, biologically prone to dementia or Alzheimer's or diabetes or cancer, stress will definitely exacerbate it. It'll speed mm -hmm. things up. Like open it up. So, so stress doesn't actually kill people. It's just, you know, these, these, we used to think that stress caused ulcers. It doesn't, or else we'd all have ulcers. But it does, if you're prone to ulcers, it will definitely speed things up. So I, people need to understand. And I ask them about who and what evokes their stress response. Mm -hmm. And I say, that's, that's empowering. That's not pessimistic. That's empowering. Mm -hmm. So that you know if your body has that reaction, that you know... Um, that it, the, the fight or flight response in, in response to stress is a good thing that was developed, you know, a million years ago. But unfortunately, most of our stressors are psychological. So mm -hmm. people need to understand who and what evokes their stress response, and mm -hmm. then they can respond in healthy ways. I mean, so is this kind of like if someone is like helping a family member and there's particular aspects of personality, per certain things that trigger someone that's very specific to them? Is that what you're walking them through here? Because they're under severe stress because this is something that's completely right. new right. Um, right. for most of them. Right, right. So the workshop, the workshop that we do is very, very individual in the sense that I acknowledge that there's so much out of your control, your family members' personalities or the paperwork or health issues. And there's so much is out of your control. But there is one thing that's in your control, and that's how you identify stress and how you personally respond to it. Mm-hmm. And so we do talk about personalities. We talk about toxic people. And I talk about, you know, sometimes a toxic person is just a toxic person. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you didn't break them and you can't fix them. It's not mm -hmm. your responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, so so the, this, the middle part of our workshop is like over bullet points of things that people can do in response to stress mm -hmm. in their personal or professional lives. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, again, it's, a, it's diplomatic. I, I acknowledge that what evokes a stress response in you might not evoke a stress response in me. So some mm -hmm. people are terrified of public speaking, but other people go into politics or become actors and actresses. They're not terrified of that. So mm -hmm. different, and so different, um, there's different solutions. So, um, some, not everybody needs to meditate. Some people need to go running when they feel mm -hmm. stress. Um, okay. So I was wondering about your experience, um, working with caregivers who are taking care of someone, for example, who has Alzheimer's, um, and what you notice as far as, I don't know if you ever witnessed like the initial diagnosis and the progression for what caregivers go through, but what is your, what do you observe? What do you, what do you see as far as different responses? It just sounds like um, there's so much involved here as being a witness to someone that, you know, people have known for all these years and there's all these aspects involved as far as, far as loss, I guess, is what I'm thinking sure. about. Um, family caregiving around Alzheimer's is incredibly difficult. It's, there, there have been, there's at least one study that documents when a family caregiver has a health issue, has a sort of pre-existing health issue themselves, when the caregiver has an, a health issue like diabetes or high blood pressure, and the cared for person eventually dies, not necessarily Alzheimer's, but the cared for person eventually dies, in more than 60% of the cases, within four years after the cared-for person dies, the caregiver is also deceased. Wow. So caregiving kills people, partly because of loneliness, but partly because of wear and tear on your spirit, on your heart. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's caregiving, I think, is particularly cruel because you put... Because the the friendship that you've built up, the love that you've built up disappears in front of you and people might not recognize you. People might not remember the memories. They might not know who you are. But also, um, as you know, there's no effective medical treatment right now, unfortunately. So people basically are just sitting next to people watching them. Mm -hmm. Stress exacerbates dementia and Alzheimer's. So if a person has early diagnosis and they have lots and lots of stress, mm -hmm. then it gets worse sooner. But also stress and depression um, probably add to the early diagnosis. So um, family caregivers of people with Alzheimer's it's like you invest all of this energy into the relationship and then there's the diagnosis and you invest all that you invest so much money into the treatment and the diagnosis into mm -hmm. the person and they start to fade away in front of you. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they become violent and sometimes they don't know you, but sometimes they still do. But the thing is, when the person eventually passes away, um, there's no there's there's almost no evidence whatsoever of all of that effort and time and money that you put into it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like there's no proof that person, all of this, the past 12 years of your life is mm -hmm. like, it, it disappears. It's intangible. Mm -hmm. There's no trophy. There's no, there's, there's very little accomplishment. It's sad. It's sad there's yeah. loss. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden they're gone. And you're yeah. like, wow, I just put all of my energy, my hope, my time, my patience, my resources, and my money into this. And what do I have to show for it? Mm -hmm. And it's not, people don't feel like it's an accomplishment because there's, there's a lot of times there's very little to, show, to nothing, nothing to show for it. Well, it sounds such like such a, a slow loss, like a very unique, slow loss. And I mean, you just said 12 years. I know that that's just a number, but that it can be many years yeah yeah of just ongoing and then it, it tends to get worse yeah yeah mm -hmm. i have a friend who 
has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and it's the first time I've personally had to deal with this. We've known each other for 29 years, Mm -hmm. and even though he's still alive and he knows who I am, in a way it's a loss of a friendship because he's not going to be visiting me in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and he's not, um, it it changes the dynamics to the relationship, but he's been told by multiple doctors that he needs to exercise, that he needs to sleep with his CPAP mask on, and he doesn't do any of these. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's dementia and Alzheimer's. I think in his spirit, he doesn't, he just wants to get this over with. He just wants to get this crap over with, Mm -hmm. which the human body can do if it wants to. So it's incredibly sad. Um, And I, I, Part of me wants to lecture him and say, you know, if you don't exercise, you're going to, it's going to get worse sooner. And mm-hmm. if you don't do this, there's a possibility that you're going to, you know, die from it. You don't say that to people with Alzheimer's. You just talk, you talk about the weather. You talk about what they had for lunch. He thinks mm-hmm. he's had flu-like symptoms for the past, like, two years. And I'm worried that he has autoimmune, autoimmune something going on. But mm-hmm. he, he just thinks it's the flu, that he's had the flu for a few days. And so it's incredibly sad to see and hear, but you just say, oh, I hope you feel soon, better soon. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, it's, um, Alzheimer's is, uh, I think partly the challenge with dementia and Alzheimer's is that people, people in our current culture are more disconnected mm-hmm. and lonely mm-hmm. in terms of the internet, in terms of nuclear families splitting apart all that in terms of less of a sense of community i think that i don't think it's an accident that alzheimer's cases are on the rise you know partly it's diet and chemicals and all that but Mm -hmm. i think partly we're a much more sad and kind of lonely culture Mm -hmm. than we ever have been before Mm -hmm. and that tends depression and loneliness has been documented and stress add Mm -hmm. to contribute to dementia and alzheimer's so Mm -hmm. It's on the rise. So part of the challenge is to get the decision makers. There's sort of the caring people and there's the decision makers. And the caring people, again, smile to the decision makers and say, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And the decision makers believe it. So caregivers actually, whether it's paid or non-paid, they need to start stirring the pot and demanding that they need support and saying, this is incredibly stressful. I need workshops. We need resilient skills building. We need information. People need to, we need advocates to stir the pot, to go back to the workplace and talk about this and say, this is a real issue. What are we doing about it? Okay. I tried to take the approach of risk of return on investment and tried to take the approach that we'd like to help your hospital reduce medical errors and liability, which cost millions of dollars to the industry. We'd like to help you reduce the cost of absenteeism and turnover. So we're talking about the medical, oh, yeah. the doctors. Paid, paid and the, care providers, yeah. yeah. So I just had a question before moving on. Sure, sure. Who are the decision makers? Like, who do you identify as the sure, decision sure. makers? So uh, decision makers are managers, are people who have sort of either, who have control over the budget and control over management. So the president of a hospital or a hospice would be a decision maker or CEO of a health care network or a counseling center. Those would be decision makers. So. Mm-hmm. Caring people, cared, care, care provider, paid care providers traditionally historically hide stress from their supervisors because they don't want to see they don't want to be seen as unprofessional and weak, mm-hmm. and they genuinely don't want their supervisors involved in their emotional well-being because they don't think that their supervisors care. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to take a financial approach and say to the decision makers, hey. 
we um, we would like to help you reduce the cost of your we would like to help you reduce the cost and incidence of your medical errors or li- workplace errors or liability, mm-hmm. the cost and incident of absenteeism and turnover. So people love to come to my workshop if it's like at a conference, if they're away from the workplace. It's been very, very difficult mm-hmm. to get organizations that are willing to innovate and willing to have me come in to want to retain me. I think partly um, organizations are proprietary. Mm-hmm. They're like, we take care of our own. That's private information. Mm-hmm. And they'll have, they say our EAP people or our HR people will deal with it. Would, mm-hmm. So talk about shaking things up in a system that's in place that um, whether it's working or not or there are aspects that are or not, it seems like it's really hard to create even these small changes. But that it starts with some of the people who can, I don't know. Make a change? Yeah. Yeah, for the past 24 years, I've been doing the HCEI on the side, and I do day jobs for income and benefits. There's not lots of there's not lots of ally organizations who are doing this. Mm-hmm. There's not lots of foundations who fund this. I'll approach an organization who's having a conference and say, "I'd like to speak about you know care for the caregiver," and they'll say, "That's not our category. We have never that's not something we talk about." Or I'll approach a foundation and I'll say we want to get funding for care for the caregiver collaboration. And they'll say, that's not something we've funded in the past. I'm like, Mm -hmm. exactly. So partly, part of the key is to find organizations and individuals that are willing to take risks, that are innovative Mm -hmm. or willing to take risks. But also part of it is to find organizations and individuals that are are in undeniable stress Mm. because it saves us on marketing costs. So Alzheimer's, family caregivers of people with Alzheimer's is is a great audience. There's such great need Family caregivers are desperate for peace of mind Mm -hmm. to know how to deal with all of the stress, but they're powerless. They don't have money to have me come and present. Mm -hmm. So we need to find organizations who can sponsor my workshop or um, who can somehow see the benefit. Um, But part, part of the challenge is to find organizations. So pediatric oncology is would they be great because they know that's incredibly stressful or family Mm -hmm. caregivers of people with Alzheimer's, but also I've given the workshop over in the UK. Um, the different cultures sometimes are open to different ways and hearing mm-hmm. information in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the workshop is universal in the sense that it's it's equally applicable in the UK. Um, uh, what I what we've done is we've adapted the workshop. So we 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 have the workshop for family and paid care providers. But in addition to that, we've adapted it for people that are doing what's called emotional labor. So mm-hmm. flight attendants, food servers, hotel front desk staff, and also people living with minority stress. Mm-hmm. Because in addition to all the other stress people have in their lives, it's been documented that African-American people have elevated rates of diabetes and hypertension and cancer. And LGBT people have elevated risk of uh, depression and suicide and addiction. So... There's different groups of people that deal with stress in different ways and have additional stressors. Mm-hmm. Eventually, there will be great resources and support for family caregivers and for paid caregivers, but there's not, and there mm-hmm. hasn't been. And okay. I don't see it. I see it eventually. Eventually, powerful organizations will jump on the bandwagon with their marketing and say, we care so much. We're doing this because the baby boomers are all retiring. There's a nursing shortage and we need to care for you or whatever. And mm-hmm. I'll appear to be innovator or whatever. But at least for the past 24 years, 
Um, it's been there's other there's other organizations doing effective stress management. Well, it's like the system's going to need it even more. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So as far as because you you have spoken at different places, like um, what do you think was the difference there with um, you know being invited or connecting with an organization? What was it about the particular organization that you think it was a good fit at this particular time? Sure. sure. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, I think the U- caregivers in the UK, so first of all, the culture in the UK, caregivers and sense of family is a lot smaller. And so there's a more defined sense of culture in the UK than there is in the US. The US is so huge and spread out all over the place. But I think there's so many level, levels of bureaucracy in the UK that the people there have sort of a built-in BS detector. And so they know when something's genuine or when something's good. And so... Starting in 2004, I'd go on vacation to the UK and I'd, I contacted hospitals by email in advance and I said, hey, I'm going to be over in Durham County. Could I come and give this workshop for your staff or for your family carers? And they said, sure. I said, I, don't, I won't charge, but just I basically would like a letter of support and collaboration. Um, in the UK, people tend to be a little bit more formal. When mm-hmm. I go give my workshops, at the beginning of the workshops, I introduce myself to people um, I thank them for coming and they almost never offer their first name. So I'll say, thank, hello, good morning, I'm Scott, thank you for coming. And they say, hello, Scott. And they never, ever offer their first name. And I'm not sure if it's because I'm American or they're worried I'm going to call on them. But they're very polite. In the UK audience, probably you will never find them texting or like dozing off, whatever. <laughs> but, so they like, they like, they're very present. They like the... Um, they like the content. It's effective content, but they also I'm. They think that I'm in this giant redhead. So visually, they're drawn in, and also audibly, they're drawn into my accent. So people like they literally lean in and are focusing visually and audibly on what I'm saying, and it's good content. And mm-hmm. I felt a, a, a synergy. I feel about twice as connected um, mm-hmm. in the UK to organizations and individuals, and they've been very supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spoken in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland as mm-hmm. part of Family Caregiver Week. Mm-hmm. And people invite me to their homes to stay when I go back and visit over there. Oh, well. People, yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep in touch with them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So. Okay, so th- those are where the experiences have really happened. And so it would be feeling very connected in some way to your audience, to the organization, that you know that it's um, useful and helpful and that... People are on board when you're feeling that connection. Yes, and it's mm-hmm. genuine. People, actions speak louder than words. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, for the past 12 years, not every year, but basically I go to the UK on vacation. And I basically, I, I'm saying to people, I came 4,000 miles to talk to you out of my own pocket. And I'm here to talk to you about wellness, about taking care of yourself. And people can tell that that's a long distance and that... And it's also, it's a little bit of a novelty. As far as I know, I'm the only American in the UK traveling around giving, you know, resilience workshops. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a niche market. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I hope to spend more time there and Mm -hmm. find more audiences there. And again, find, get grant funding or collaborative funding or subcontracts that will allow me to, like, in a perfect world, just travel around and give the workshops to people who need it the most. Mm -hmm. And again, the people that need it the most don't have money. They don't have decision-making power. They couldn't pay me five pounds or five dollars if they wanted to. Well, it seems like this is, I mean, there's so many people who need this. Yeah. There's so many people who need this. When I tell, when I talk to people about my project, they say, oh my God, that's amazing. There must be so much demand for it. Well, there's great need for it. But again, organizationally in the U.S., there has not been great demand because people are unwilling or their organizations are so entrenched, they're un 
able to invite me in or they're un they're like sometimes I think they're like we should have thought of that ourselves we have a multi-million dollar budget and we're not doing it we should have thought of that ourselves and they and they don't or they haven't some mm-hmm. some people are mm-hmm. some people are doing really bad jobs sometimes the CEO will sit down with all of the staff and say, we're going to have a heart to heart about stress. Talk to me about your stress or whatever. And you know, my, my very worst workshops are the ones where staff are required to go and where mm-hmm. there's supervisors in the room mm-hmm. because people don't nod in agreement. They don't laugh at my jokes. I've actually had people raise their hand and say, this really doesn't apply to me. And I yeah. wanted to say, is that because your boss is sitting across the room from you? Mm-hmm. So. so it would be helpful to have those workshops where they're not, they have the option to go and where their supervisors or bosses are not there. Yeah, or keep do mm-hmm. one for management or one for providers, um, mm-hmm. or have it even if it's uh, ideally have it be voluntary. It's your oh. choice to come, but if it is required, uh, have it be something again celebratory. Like mm-hmm. uh, this is a celebration of compassion for Nurses mm-hmm. Week or the end of the calendar year or something. It's just something, an appreciation for what you're doing, and. Um, Again, the benefit of the workshop is that when people leave the room, they have all the information they need to identify stress and respond in healthy ways. There's mm-hmm. no other committee that needs to be formed. There's nothing. We're going to get back to you about this or whatever. Mm-hmm. Many organizations and individuals in terms of stress and burnout are talking about we need to change the scheduling. We need to change the salaries. We need to change the paperwork, which mm-hmm. has a lot of merit to it. Mm-hmm. But those are things that, that involve a lot of people and could take a long time. And those changes might never happen. But... Again, we, what I'm saying to people is here's something that you can do now mm-hmm. if you want to, if you choose to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I challenge people to think about, um, I challenge people to think about the, the, the people who they cared for. And sometimes we break into pairs discussion and people talk, they, they get to talk to another person about somebody who they've cared for and who was the person and what did you do to make, to help them. And then at the end of the workshop is an appreciation and I bring it back and I say to them, you know, what would have happened if you wouldn't have been there to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, so, mm-hmm. and I, I remind people there would have been a lot more tears in the world without you. Mm-hmm. There, you've done a lot of things that now you or only God or the universe know about. You've done things, you've helped people live with dignity and you've helped people die with dignity. Mm-hmm. And you've touched lives in ways that you've never shown or told anybody. And I know that. And people are in tears mm-hmm. because nobody's ever talk to them like that before nobody's ever seen it nobody's ever praised it mm-hmm. so so you see them i see and them they feel seen yeah i yeah. say i'm a caregiver who had burnout and stress and you might be also and here's my story and i want to remind you about and there's humor and we do different exercises we do a, a charting your stress exercise or we do an exercise or pairs discussion or we do an exercise where people can list their own needs and their own things that they need to focus on more in their lives mm-hmm. to feel more whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately at the very end, it's sort of a, it's sort of a beginning discussion. It opens cans of worms. Mm-hmm. So at the very end, people are like, what now? And I say, exactly. Now it's up to you and your supervisors or you and the county health officials or you or whoever brought me here mm-hmm. to keep the, uh, keep the object on the tape, keep the topic on the table mm-hmm. and to, um, and to keep advocating for yourself and other people. And is there anything else you'd like us to know about what it means to care for the caregiver? Caring people are amazing and have amazing, giving, vibrant hearts. A lot of times caring people who experience stress personally or professionally feel like they're weak and that they're part of the problem and that they're broken. 
but it's the systems that cause the stress and it's the systems that are usually broken. Mm -hmm. Caring people are at risk for self-medication, mm -hmm. uh, mental illness sometimes, because they, depression, because mm -hmm. they take on, because they have a compassionate, caring heart. Um, one group of, I was talking to one group of caregivers, family caregivers on the Orkney Islands, and at the end there's a woman who said, you know, we're family carers, and she said, you make us sound like we're so amazing and thanking us for doing this, but it's not a choice, she said. And I didn't, I didn't argue with her at the time, but mm -hmm. I say it is a choice. Because mm -hmm. there's family members who don't care. Mm -hmm. There's professionals who don't care. Mm -hmm. They should and they don't. Mm -hmm. So in our society, in the United States, people reward celebrity and the people reward you know america's got talent or america's biggest loser or the kardashians people admire and give money to these people and we give our you know certified nursing assistants barely grudgingly ten dollars an hour to change the diapers on our two-year-olds and our 95 year olds mm -hmm. and so as a culture we don't value kindness. We don't value tenderness and compassion. We, mm -hmm. we, we hope we get it, but in general, mm -hmm. people, people see that as weak. People see us as weak, and people take advantage. Do you think that's changing? I mean, do you think that we're, that has it changed over the years where that's becoming more valued, or you're not seeing any change whatsoever? I think it's becoming a little bit more valued. There's there's nursing unions, there's a lot of social media, there's a lot of stuff going on. But in general, the, I think the U.S. is not, I think we, we care, mm -hmm. but sometimes we care about what social media tells us to care about. You know, the mm -hmm. Kardashians have a new swimsuit, and people are like, did you see that? But I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so sure that we're compassionate. I mean, we're compassionate in the sense that if somebody goes into the ER with a knife in their neck, they will probably be treated. Mm -hmm. but we're not compassionate in terms of having one of the highest rates of infant mortality and, um, and, and poverty, childhood poverty in the U.S. And having no national medical health care plan, no medical, no national vacation, paternity or maternity mm -hmm. leave. And so people, you know, a year ago when the... Um, Ebola was in the U.S. and there were nurses uh, exposed to Ebola on planes traveling around the U.S. and they thought, you know, if you've been exposed to Ebola, is it okay if you get on an airplane and fly? And everybody's like, I guess so. So our country wasn't even ready for Ebola. And let's just say stress isn't at the top of the list. It's not a priority. It's secret. It's invisible. It's like carbon monoxide. It affects different people in different ways. Mm -hmm. And in general, everybody's smiling and saying they're fine and they don't need anything. Mm -hmm. And people mm -hmm. believe them. So they're like, oh, they're good. They said they're fine. So getting comfortable with asking for what you need. Asking for what you need and making it just by default an issue that everybody, that every class of medical students or nurses or therapists or massage therapy students or family caregivers has to focus on, has to have mandatory like education about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mostly, finally, I would say for caregivers that we have to be forgiving of ourselves mm -hmm. because we're still human. Yeah. And we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah. And we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much um, for sharing all of your experience and then also what your workshop brings and what the needs are um, in our own country, what you're seeing in that area. Um, what is your website? Our website is HCEI, the Healthcare Exchange Initiative. So we're HCEI.org. And we are eager to network and collaborate with individuals and organizations that are forward-thinking and innovative. And um, we'd like to work together to celebrate and, and to 
support caring people in the mm-hmm. U.S. and elsewhere. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any additional resources or anything mentioned in this podcast can be found um, at onthebluecouch.com. Please follow or subscribe on iTunes, follow on Twitter or Facebook. Until next time.